Thank you, Joanna. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 3. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, Ron or Martin would like to pick them up, and we will pray for you this week. God is true and every man a liar. Why is that important for us to believe? Not because we are uh, embittered people or uh, misplaced people. We're simply quoting scripture and we're following the argument of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And he's listed a number of advantages that the Jews have had uh, through their history. I've had a couple of conversations in recent weeks in which the question came up, what do you think is the most important doctrine of the Christian faith? That's always dangerous ground when you start entering into conversations like that because all doctrine is important and vital to our faith. But just playing along a little bit, we, we could say, well, isn't it the doctrine of God? I mean, after all, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And certainly that would put it in first place. Or what about the doctrine of Christ, God's own Son, who came in human flesh and who uh, lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death and a and rose victoriously over the grave. And that his finished work stands over time and history, even to this moment, calling men and women to repent, that they might know God's redemption and forgiveness and receive eternal life. Surely that would be the most important doctrine. And again, this is uh, kind of uneasy because uh, all things are important, but if we're just playing along for a bit, we come to the doctrine of the Word of God, which is where I would hold... Um, this morning as one of the most valuable that we could, could embrace, and that is because the doctrine of Scripture informs our faith. And I think it may be a false dichotomy to separate God and His Word in the sense that He's a God who speaks. He has spoken to us in creation. He has spoken to us through His Son. He has spoken to us through His written Word. John Calvin wrote, we owe to Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him alone and has nothing be belonging to man mixed with it. What Calvin was saying is not a call to worship a book, but to worship the God of the book who speaks through His Word. If you want to hear what God is saying to you, read His Word and how that comes to us. And therefore, we should have the utmost respect and reverence for it. When the Apostle Paul mentioned the advantages of the Jews, which he brings up in chapter 3, he says in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. And then he says to begin with, which is, I'm going to begin a list. <laughs> but he only mentions one. God gave to the Jews the oracles of God, the word of God. And he picks up, it, it, this really anticipates the finishing of the list in chapter 9, which I'll mention in just a moment. But here he talks about the, the oracles of God's word, having God's word. And so I want to just begin this message this morning that, that God is true and, and every man is a liar with a, an impassioned appeal to you to cast the anchor of your soul on the trustworthiness of God's word. 
perish the thought that you're on a gurney in a hospital bed and you're battling a virus and you're losing ground. I preach messages like this this morning for instances like that that are not far removed. What do you believe? What do you stand on? And I'll close this message with just a brief survey of the news of this week and why it is important for us to say, look, God is true and everyone is a liar. John Knox was the Scottish reformer who drew from the artesian well of God's word. He was a man with a voice in the wilderness in his native land of Scotland. He was a courageous man for a brutal age. One biographer recorded the words spoken at his grave, Here lies one who never feared the face of man. I don't know too many people like that. Knox's life many times over bore witness to the fact that he cared nothing for the praise of men or for his own reputation. He was not one quickly caught in the snare of the fear of man. His theology and writings as well as his preaching were the subject of much controversy. Douglas Wilson describes him as a man who set the pulpit on fire. Consequently, the people of Scotland flocked to hear him preach. He had little tolerance for doctrinal haze, and his spirit was provoked when he encountered error. His ministry was salty and taken seriously. One alleged statement made by Queen Mary was a confession that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than the combined armies of, of Scotland. If true, her comment was a concession to the power of Knox's life from prayer. Even his home life was not without controversy. (laughs) His first wife died and he married a woman named Margaret Stewart. This marriage brought him a great deal, this marriage brought a great deal of discussion. At the time of their marriage, she was a young English lass, not quite 20, and he was in his late 40s, but he didn't give a rip. From their marriage, Knox was blessed with three daughters who brought him great joy. Margaret ministered to him through their marriage and especially in the final hours of his life as he lay on his deathbed, he said to her, go read where I first cast my anchor. And Margaret knew exactly what he was talking about and she went and got the Bible and opened it to John 17 and read to him in the final hours of his life, the promises of Jesus Christ. I want to live like that. And we should live like that because when we come to Scripture, there are four things I would want to mention and I'm grateful for Wayne Grudem bringing this to our attention and is systematic concerning Scripture and that is that God's Word is authoritative. All the words in the Bible are God's words. Therefore, to quote Dr. Grudem, to disbelieve or disobey them is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. You will need to come to a conviction on that. 
or you'll have nothing to say in the, the wind that is blowing today culturally. It is authoritative. Thus says the Lord means just that. Second would be clarity. Clarity. As we read the scriptures and seek to understand it, we discover that some passages are easier to understand than others. But if you can read the the newspaper, you can read the Bible. Yes, there are some passages that stretch our minds, but you can understand the message of the Bible. It gives, it makes the wise, uh, the simple wise. It gives understanding to the prudent. The third would be the necessity of Scripture. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And in order to guide us in understanding who God is, we, we, we can't look to general revelation. That, that shows us that there is a God who is divinely powerful. But it is his word we need. It is necessary for us to come to terms with salvation through the reading of his word. It's what we need to have our sins forgiven. It's what we need to know with certainty what God wants us to do and how he wants us to live. And then finally, the sufficiency of scripture that the Bible contains all the words of God that a person needs to become a Christian and to live the Christian life. It is sufficient for life and godliness. So would you cast your anchor there again this Lord's Day? There's a reason why we read the scripture. There's a reason why we encourage every member to hear it and to read it and to study it and to memorize it and to meditate upon it. It is what we need to live for Christ. So I don't know where you are on that important doctrine, but I pray if your heart has grown cold to the things of God, the word of God, that you would say, Lord, incline my heart to your word, open my eyes that I may see beautiful things from the scriptures and satisfy my mind and my heart with the truth that comes to me. So Paul begins with the advantage in Romans 3 that God had entrusted the Jews with the oracles of God, the word of God, which we have in its completion, in the completion of the canon. And we should make every opportunity to understand it and to bring it into our life. So let's move secondly to count your many advantages, name them one by one. Which is what we see here as Paul seems again to be anticipating an objector, a Jewish objector. He had encountered hundreds of them in the synagogues as he went in to argue that Jesus was the Messiah, the completion of the Old Testament promises, in him all the promises of God are yes. And they fought back. They pushed back, almost without exception, they pushed back. In in fact, we we read in the text um, that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful, Paul asks in verse 3, which is a nice way to say, what if most were unfaithful? almost without exception. You, you read of a sprinkling of Jews who believe Paul, but by and large, they, he came to his own, and his own, what? Received him not. So Paul's uh, anticipating this objector because in chapter 2, at the end, 
He's talking about what a true Jew is, and it's not one externally, which sent them into orbit, which brought them out of their chair. And then he goes on to say in chapter 3 that the Jews have many advantages and they're important. And you can hear the objector saying, wait a minute, Paul, you can't have it both ways. Either the covenantal promises that have come to the Jews trump all things or not. And so what they're trying to do is rule out the truth of the gospel. But Paul says that that's not so. That God's covenantal promises to Israel don't nullify the truth of the gospel. They flow together. And so you need to receive your Messiah. He was trying to establish that every human being, Jews as well as Gentiles, in these early chapters of Romans, were guilty before God and in need of a Savior. And in making the point, he put Jew and Gentile on level ground. Paul put forward the advantages that the Jews had by virtue of their role in redemptive history. And he's contending in his mind anyway with this objector. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. That's, that's, that's no good. And an outright rejection is often what he experienced. So he says to begin with, and this again anticipates chapter 9 through 11 in Romans. Paul completes the list in Romans. If you were to look at chapter 9, verse 4, and I brought this to your attention last week, and I think it's important, not only did God give the Jews the oracles of God and call Israel to himself, to whom belongs the son, the adoption as sons, he adopted them as sons. The glory of God was seen in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The covenants with Abraham and Moses and David, the temple services and the promises, the fathers, the traditions that have come, and from the greatest of all, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. But just because you have advantages... Just because you have advantages doesn't mean you will enter the kingdom of God. Being a church member won't save you. Reading the Bible through every year, all of your life, will not save you. You can squander your advantages. The covenant privileges of the Jews of Israel. And I just in our staff meeting this week... Uh, it was suggested maybe we could take a step back and try to get a picture of, the, of, of God's covenant promises to Israel that we might understand this better. I think that's a good idea because so much is said in Romans. And we begin with Abraham in Genesis 12. would invite you to turn there. Genesis 12, God called Abraham. Of all the men in Ur the Chaldees, God called Abraham and chose him to be the one by which he would, have, he would build a nation. And he said to Abram, at this time Abraham, later he would be Abraham, Abram, later he would be Abraham. He said in Genesis 12, 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abraham's not in Ur thinking, you know, I, I, want, I want to be a great nation. I think I'm going to take a road trip. No, this was a call. This was God's sovereign choice of Abraham. 
And Abraham went, and God went on with his promise. He said in verse 2, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that has reached even to us. We read in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 3 that all who are in Christ Jesus, we are his descendants. We're the descendants of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. So this Abrahamic covenant, God would build a nation. And from Abraham came Isaac. And Isaac and Rebekah had twins, Esau and Jacob. And from the womb, God sovereignly chose the younger, Jacob. And he said, as Rebekah was saying, I got I got." I got a civil war going on in my womb. And she inquired of the Lord, and, and the Lord said to her, you have two nations in your womb. The older will serve the younger. And from Jacob were 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham, Israel went into bondage, into Egypt for 400 years. And at the end of that time, God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who was picked up out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, grew up under the tutelage of Pharaoh, and at the appointed time was called by God to leave, lead Israel out of, out of bondage in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 19, God said to Moses in the Mosaic Covenant, Thus you, shall be, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Did they ever? The plagues. The parting of the Red Sea only for it to come down on the Egyptians. Yes, we've seen your power, Lord. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And these are the words which you shall speak to the people of Israel. The Mosaic Covenant. It's conditional. If you, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, and how did Israel do with that? I remember reading one commentator who said, all Israel ever knew was a broken covenant. And that's all we know, too, with regard to our sin. There's another covenant I want to bring to your attention. Abraham, Moses, who would receive the law of God, the Ten Commandments. But the third would be David. And in 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a house for God. And God said, no, you're not going to build a house for me. Your hands are too bloody. But one will come after you, and that would be Solomon. And he would build the temple. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says to David in verse 16, and he gives the Davidic covenant, which would be so important because anyone claiming to be the Messiah had to establish that he came from the line of David. So, God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, we know and just through the 
the history of Judah that it wouldn't last forever. They would go into captivity. So how would that be fulfilled? I'm glad you asked that. Because that's how the New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1. And notice what it says in Matthew chapter 1. Many tend to skip over the genealogies. Don't skip over the genealogies. It's one way to value the promises of God from one generation to the next. This is how the New Testament begins. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, isn't that an interesting way to state it? Who was older, Abraham or David? Abraham was older, 700 years perhaps older. Why would David be first? Because Matthew is tracking this for the Jewish mind. Matthew wrote the gospel for his fellow Jews and he takes it back to the Davidic covenant where God said that, that someone from you, will, your, your descendants will be on the throne forever. How was that promise fulfilled? It was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Matthew makes the case that Jesus is the Messiah, he begins with David. Because if you can't link it to David, your claims are off and to be disregarded. So Israel had advantages, covenant blessings. But they had failed because Christ came and by and large, they had rejected him. Which leads me, thirdly, to our failures do not nullify God's faithfulness or his will. So what Paul is contending here is he say, is saying, though Israel has, has failed, has embraced unbelief, God's promises are not unfaithful. God is faithful. Our failures do not nullify God's faithfulness or his will. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? No, God is faithful. Even when Israel was not, even when his church fails, God is still faithful. Now, that is a helpful word for us because sometimes we look around and we look at the Christian community, we look at the state of, of, of the church, and we mourn, don't we? Not in self-righteousness, we just mourn that we're not what we should be. And in some, some communities, there's barely a spark of gospel light, even in these United States. And we're tempted to, to think that way. Well, the church is failing, the church is not what it needs to be. That may be so, but God's faithful. So we will stand on His promises. Beware of looking to human examples. God is faithful with a failing nation. God is faithful even with a failing church. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is righteous. His judgments are true. Look at Romans 3 verse 19. We will get there eventually. But I want you to see... This statement in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. That's a picture of the judgment. Every mouth will be stopped. God is true 
and we're not. And he will be triumphant. God's final word will carry the day. It will be triumphant. It will be triumphant. So the flow of this may seem outrageous to us, but many people do think that because they're a member of a church or some special group, that that counts for something in, for getting them into the kingdom of God. And Paul is warning people who think that their membership, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, will be a guarantee of you entering into God's kingdom and being excluded from the judgment. He's seeking to say, don't be fooled, don't be deceived. Which leads us to the title of our message, fourthly. Let God be true, though everyone is a liar. He says in verse 4, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he says, as it is written. And notice what it says here in verse 4, as it is written. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. That is interesting. Where does that come from? I gave you a clue last week. This is Psalm 51. This is from the pen of David. And it says here uh, in the ESV, David is confessing his sins to God after Bathsheba, Uriah and Bathsheba, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The the New American Standards uh, footnote says, prevail in your judging. Speaking of God's righteousness. The New Living Translation, you will be proved right in what you say and you will win your your case in court. And perhaps the only time I would say that the NIV got it right would be here. So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. That's the idea. That when God speaks, it's true. When he judges, it's true. And again, this is from Psalm 51. And it's preserved in Scripture that we might see God's grace on display. The superscription of the psalm goes this way. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. After he had gone into Bathsheba. It's for the choir master. (laughs) How'd you like to be the choir master and be handed that? Here, sing this. And they did. Have mercy on me, O God, he said. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So why would Paul use Psalm 51 verse 4 to support that God is true and every man a liar? It's because he's going on what David said in the in the crucible of that suffering. Unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. Even in the case of David, as David's sin is against God, it vindicates God's word by pronouncing judgment. Earlier this summer, I mentioned to you the backdrop of how David was confronted with his sin. I want to mention it again. It's worth mentioning. It's in 2 Samuel 12 when Nathan comes to David. Now, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah, one of the mighty men of David. 
And uh, he tried to get out of that in a number of um, sinful ways, but couldn't. And so he just goes right for the jugular, writes a note to, Uri- uh, to uh, Joab to put Uriah on the front line and to pull back in the hottest part of the battle. And so, in essence, David not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but had her husband Uriah murdered. And so about a year passes and David's thinking all is well. Although we know from Psalm 32, it, it wasn't well. And so Nathan comes and he tells him a little story about two men in a certain city. One's rich and the other's poor. And the rich man had many flocks and herds. And the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had bought. The poor man had one little ewe lamb that he nurtured. This little lamb grew up with his children. The lamb used to eat and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him and... There came a day when a traveler came to the rich man and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest, but took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the traveler and it was eaten. And David heard this story and blood rushed to his head. You could see the veins in his neck, no doubt. It was greatly kindled. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan takes his finger and says, you're the man. You're the man. You have no excuse. God's saving promises and his precise judgments are righteous and true. And David confirms that as he's confessing his sin. And I'm just wondering, David went about nine months with that burden of sin. And if you read Psalm 32, which is a parallel to Psalm 51, his bones were wasting away. And I thought about that this week as we come into this worship, how we can carry things that need to be released and turned over and confessed and begun again with God's grace. Paul's debate are with those Jews who attempt to put God in a box Because of covenantal promises. But God can't be put in a box. The gospel is not at odds with anything God promised Israel. So what you have here, Jews playing word games with the Bible. Beware of playing word games with the Bible. Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Things like that. Which, by the way, C.S. Lewis explains that God's omnipotence puts the question in perspective. Omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do that which is intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is not limit to his power. It's no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of the two exclusive alternatives, not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when you're talking about God. Early in my ministry, I was thinking about playing word games with the Bible, spent long long periods of time, writing out detailed 
email messages to, to skeptics like this. It bears little fruit. So Paul is dealing with that in his mind, with this objector who's playing word games. I, I thought about Jesus fielding the question about John the Baptist. Do you remember this in Matthew 21? When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and, and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Games. And Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Everybody kind of leans in. <laughs> and Jesus goes on to say, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So they get in a football huddle and they begin to kick around the options. If we say it's from God then it's going to come back on us. Then why didn't you listen to him? We, we say it was from man. The, 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 the people loved him. And so they answered Jesus brilliantly. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, I can't help you out. Word games. So I appeal to us just in this closing, if you'd follow me on this closing, some two important points of application. It'll take just a, a moment longer, but I want you to take in what's happening here from Romans 3. The first point of application would be the truth of God's word doesn't depend on human acceptance to be true. So if you're looking for the world to validate your faith, to say to you, well done, you've embraced God's word as authoritative in your life. It's not going to happen. The truth of God's word doesn't depend on human acceptance to be true. God is true and everyone else is what? Second. God's promises to save those who turn from their sins and believe in Christ are true. God's promises are true. God's promises of salvation are true. I was reminded this week of Paul's treatment of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. I love that story. Paul enters into Philippi with Silas. They're doing gospel work. They deliver this demonized girl who was earning a profit for her owners, when she was set free, that demonic activity was over. She was born again and knew. And her owners didn't like that. And so they lied about Paul and Silas. They were arrested. And against Roman law, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he, they were beaten with rods. They were put in a stinking Mamertine prison in the inner part of the prison, in stocks. So I don't know about you, but, I, you know, I could see a lot of self-pity going on in my life. What does it pay to do what's right, Lord? I mean, look at... No, that's not, that's not what they're doing. It's about midnight, and they're singing hymns to God. I love this story. It's such a rebuke, as Russ brought to our attention, our complaining to go back to Egypt. And so they're singing hymns, songs and hymns to the Lord. 
And about midnight, what happened? It's always about midnight, isn't it? <laughs> An earthquake comes, opens up the prison doors, and, um, and the prisoners are free to leave. The jailer sees this, retrieves his sword, and is ready to, to take his own life. This is amazing to me. Paul says, hold off. Hold up. We're all here. The jailer knew that if any of the prisoners escaped, he would be facing Roman punishment, which would be his death. And we see the magnanimous heart of Paul saying, hold up, we're all here. And this jailer, taken by it all, says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I really believe, in my sanctified imagination, Paul and Silas turned to one another and smiled and said in unison, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God's promises are true. God's promises to save those who turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, they're true. God is true. That's something you can believe right now. Thirdly, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to follow? We are watching right now in living color by the hour an escalation of insanity in this world. Radical efforts to redefine language like pronouns, gender, identity politics, and if you do not embrace the dogma of the radical left, you will be canceled and punished. This message is so timely for us, friends. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, We Will Not Be Silent, wrote, here is the way the cancel culture works. It says, yes, you have First, First Amendment rights. You can exercise your freedom of speech. But if you do, we will make sure that you're fired. You will be vilified and ostracized and trolled and canceled. Dr. Albert Moeller this week, Friday actually, in his podcast, The Briefing, referenced the Equality Act, which is the most radical LGBTQ legislation that could ever be passed by this nation. Dr. Moeller's words. It has passed the House. The Democrats in the Senate pledged that they will pass it as well. It's the greatest threat to religious liberty in our lifetime. But make no mistake, it's an intentional effort to try to use legislation at the national level to try to push the ambitions of the LGBTQ movement, who, by the way, are not our enemies. This particular advertisement is intended to inform Americans about how difficult it is for two men to have a child or two women to have a child. Now, here's the point I want to make, said Dr. Moeller. It's not difficult for two men to make a baby. It's impossible. So when you talk about two men having a baby, you're talking about something other than normal human reproduction but that's actually, again, a sign of the times. The article tells us that 
Even as this advertisement is being prepared, the headline is two dads try to explain to their son where babies come from. Now, you can understand that a gay male couple would indeed have a rather difficult time telling a child where babies come from because if they tell the story right, the way human beings throughout time would have told the story, it will involve a man and a woman. Furthermore, it would involve the institution of marriage. It would involve the institution of the family. It would involve a mother and a father identified as such. But the point that's actually made or intended to be made by this commercial this advertisement, is that it is more difficult than it should be for same-sex couples to be able, by whatever means they may choose, surrogate motherhood or adoption, or for that matter, the argument is it, 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 it should be easier. It should not be this difficult, is what they're trying to say. But this is where Christians need to respond again, clarifying the issue. It isn't difficult, it's actually impossible If you're going to tell anyone truthfully where babies come from, you're going to need not only a sperm and an egg in some real sense, you're going to need a mother and a father. Eventually offering something of a complaint about the the situation as it is today, the two dads, we are told, decide that it's time to explain the process of having a baby. And one of the dads says, well... When two daddies love each other and they want to have a baby, first they talk to a lawyer about their options. Now again, we're supposed to have sympathy for the fact that this shouldn't involve a lawyer, but the point is that it's actually biologically impossible. We are witnessing in our lifetimes an outright war on biology. Now at a deeper theological level, it's a war on being as God created It's a war on the very notions of male and female, mother and father, brother and sister, husband and wife. Go down the list, even the notions of man and woman and boy and girl. Dr. Moeller, in closing, I know this has been long, but important, I think. Yesterday morning, listening to NPR, National Public Radio, just to try to get the tempo of the culture, it was very interesting that some of the lead stories on the morning edition had to do with the advisory coming from the medical authorities that pregnant women ought to be vaccinated. Now, the point in this case is this. Repeatedly, the phrase uh, was used, pregnant people. Pregnant people. What? Since the beginning of the time, it's, it's a pregnant woman. And breastfeeding being replaced with chest feeding. It's insane, which we have seen in our study of Romans 1 through 3. Chest feeding? Really? So why is Romans 3, 4, let God be true and everyone a liar? Why is that so important? How has that worked out? If everyone, what, basically what it's saying, and I'm thankful for Brian Borgman's thoughts on this, What it's saying to us is this, even if everyone affirms the moral and spiritual insanity of our culture, God is true. God's word is true. God always trumps over lies because he is true. Always over sin because he is righteous. He always triumphs over unfaithfulness because he's faithful. 
what it means and why this is important and why I'm calling us to cast the anchor of our soul onto the rock of Scripture because it is God's Word is because even if everyone on the planet affirmed homosexuality was normal, even if on, this, on the planet, everyone on the planet said it was perfectly legitimate to kill the baby in a mother's womb, even if every single solitary soul said that the number of genders is endless, even if every single solitary person said that there are many ways to God, even if every single solitary person said that people should be treated and judged by the color of their skin and that racism should be uh, promoted, even if every person on the planet says God does not exist, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no salvation, and there's no judgment. Even if every person said that God is true and every man is a liar, that's what it means for you. And for me. The truth of God doesn't depend on human acceptance to be true. It will always be true. Do you believe it? God's promises for future judgment are sure. But so are his promises for redemption and salvation right now. What Paul said to the Philippian jailer is true right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But if you don't, if you say to yourself, I I don't think that sounds so great. It doesn't sound like good news to me. I don't need God in that way. What Jesus has to offer doesn't sound good at all. It might make me as oppressive and as uptight as the people I'm sitting next to this morning. Just as God will keep his promise for those who believe in Christ, he will also keep his promise for those who refuse to repent. Friends, I believe there's an eternal hell. I believe there's an eternal hell. Not because that's a story I would want to concoct. But because Jesus Christ said there's an eternal hell. There's a judgment coming. You're just trying to scare us. Okay. We should fear. We should fear the Lord. Which should drive us to the cross and to Christ himself. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. And I'll close with this. The last four words, in verse 8, rather. I'm sorry, uh, Romans 3, 8. Their condemnation is just. How does Paul end his engagement with the detractor, with the argue, argumentative Jew? With one who wants to play word games and gymnastics with the Bible or spiritual things? It just ends with their condemnation is just. God is true. And every man is a liar. So may we rest in his promises. Would you bow with me in prayer?